How many female tech entrepreneurs does it take to change the world for the better? One, especially when their name is Alison Hardacre and they start off trying to build a global business with global ambitions and they want to fix the whole of the healthcare sector all over all of the world. Mighty ambitions. But in Alison's case, it's been matched with both ability and execution. Alison didn't know she was an entrepreneur. She didn't have a, a lemonade stand, but she was a serial improver who found problems and actioned their improvements. That, to Alison, is being an entrepreneur. Alison has built Halaxy into a global SaaS business with over 40,000 practitioners in 130 countries. She has a low profile, but if you are ever looking for an extraordinary entrepreneur in Australia, building extraordinary tech with a brilliant brain and ambitions for global domination, then look no further than Alison Hardacre. Enjoy our discussion. Alison Hardacre, co-founder and co-CEO Halaxy, welcome to Discipline. Thank you, good to be here. Now you might know where I begin most episodes and for my first interview of 2020, what did you want to be when you grew up? Tram driver. I love trams. Just love them. Still love trams? Oh, yes. Um, for my birthday uh, a couple of years ago, my business partner uh, wanted to get me the opportunity to drive a tram, but they won't allow you to. Damn it. Security and everything. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, but I would still like to, to be a tram driver. Mm. And I even have a preferred uh, tram route Really? Well. Yes. The City Circle tram. <laughs> But you didn't go into that field when you uh, no, but finished still, school. There's still time. There's still time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you actually studied law rather yes. than tram conducting. <laughs> yep. Uh, but you never practiced? Uh, not very much, no. No? So I, uh, the school I went to, if you couldn't do science, then you couldn't be a doctor, so you just have to be a lawyer. Yeah. And I really liked uh, Asian languages, so my other degree was arts. I saw um, you did a bit of Indonesian and Thai. Yep, and then um, other languages as well. So I really liked the language side of things. And then the law degree, you know, enabled me to get a job, <laughs> which was good. But ultimately I went into consulting, then did an MBA, and then kind of got my stuff together and um, did a lot of different work, mainly strategy um, in health insurance and banking, but so worked my way up. How did you end up in the health sector yeah. from when you left university? Did you actively seek that sector out or did it choose you? Oh, well, is it fate or is it, uh, I don't know. Um, I was always interested in the healthcare sector. Yep. Uh, so I had a professional career and then a community career as well. Yes. So my professional career, ultimately I got to my first executive level role in a bank and then jumped off. I was reporting to the deputy CEO of the bank and then I knew if I'd kept going, I was never going to jump and never going to set up my own business. But I'd done a lot of work in the healthcare sector. Um, so I was on the National Suicide Prevention yes. Board. Yes. Stronger Families and Communities Partnership, which was about addressing the real causes of social disconnection in our in our society. Um, and then I was also on the board of SCOPE, um, which is Victoria's largest disability organisation. So I had that mix of healthcare, welfare and disability. And so really understood healthcare from a delivery point of view, uh, also policy point of view, having been on government boards and then having worked at Medibank and... Yes. Um, and corporate planning there, I understood it from a payments point of view. Yep. So that's all of what healthcare is. Okay. So when I was looking to set up my own business, I knew I wanted it to be online 
And I knew I wanted it to be in a service rather than a product area. Yeah. And so, and providing that service online. Uh, so that I ultimately at the time met health or education and I understood healthcare quite a lot more. But this wasn't a concerted effort on your part to go around to these disparate aspects of the healthcare system and sort of put it all together so that you could find a business or was it strategic? Not at first. Right. At first it was about let's uh, – so original – so we've had two businesses. Uh, so the original plan for the first business was online consultations. Yes. Uh, so this was back in 2008, 2009. Yes. Uh, so very early days of video consultations yeah. and possibly too early. Uh, but we built the business which was providing healthcare services online yep. um, to patients in rural areas in particular. Yeah. Um, and then realised in order to enable that, not only was it about the vid- uh, video, is about the calendar and the diary, and about the invoicing, and most importantly, the payment. Plugging into the practice management. And these yeah. Things. Well, at the time, most uh, practices still didn't have practice management, okay. so that was the opportunity. And then we saw that there's a much bigger opportunity face to face. Yeah. In addition to online. Anyway, so that was our first business. So we had this really amazing idea to help these people but actually looking back at it it's actually quite a small idea compared to where we are now we're out, we're about fixing the whole of the health sector everywhere in the world um and so starting off smaller enabled us to get to that was that vision. still part of health kit galaxy that first bit no, we were a business called Specialist Link. Okay. Then when we decided to build a global business, we had to completely revamp everything and had to start again, which is actually a very hard decision to make. Let's just go back a little bit here. Mm. So you've, you've, you've worked in the healthcare system. Yep. You've also been in the, the finance uh, arena with one of the big banks. Um, what made you want to go on to boards like suicide prevention? What was, yeah. what was in your DNA that made you think... This is where I need to uh, spend some of my time. I think it was more that I wanted the world to be better. And I don't know that working at a bank was necessarily doing that for me. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> um, it gave me some very good skills. I ticked off, I was on a general management path, so I ticked off all the different types of skills, sales, operations, yep. tech, etc. So that was great from a professional point of view. Yeah. But what I was passionate about was uh, improving the world. And so being involved with those organisations um, was a fantastic way to do that. Yes. Um, and now with the organisation that I have now that I've built, um, it combines the two lives. So, I mean, there is there is a lot of ways you can help the world. Obviously, mm. you can go hand-to-hand and yep. you can give money. But how do you decide that the best way to help the world is to go from banking into your own business and then build a tech platform yeah. in the health sector. How, how do those dots connect? Well, I mean, within a month of being at the big bank that I worked at, I wanted to run my own business. It just took three years for the big, beautiful idea to come. Right. And I thought the way you come up with the idea is going through the AFR market pages and analysing which sectors, etc. No. It's all about what you're passionate about. Yes. And I was passionate about healthcare. But you didn't know it straight away? When you started at the bank, when you're looking for this? Oh, gosh, no. I didn't know that I was an entrepreneur because I had that whole idea that entrepreneurs are people who had the lemonade stand when they were little, et cetera, and that wasn't me. Right. However, what was me was I was a serial improver. Yes. I would get involved with a particular organisation. Problem solver. Problem solver and actioning the problem, not just doing a PowerPoint about it. And I look back now and that is, I think, a sign of an entrepreneur. 
Right. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, one of the things that uh, starts a business or a great business is solving a problem, finding a customer pain point, hopefully at scale, and identifying a way to fix it, uh, hopefully at low cost (laughs) and at scale. And that's exactly right. And I think as we've done a lot more in the healthcare sector, our confidence with understanding what that problem is yep. um, has grown and our confidence with uh, fixing that problem has grown. So in healthcare, it's very, very complex. Um, everything's disjointed. It's incredibly fragmented. There's lots of moving parts, so massively long value chain for practices to manage and for patients. You have to find the practitioner, then you have to bring all the information, then you have to go see the practitioner, you have to pay, etc. So it's a very, very complex market, um, especially because that differs. You see um, a speech pathologist, that differs to a dermatologist, yep. which differs to a GP. Yes. And so for the practitioners, it's the same. Yeah. Um, and then if you happen to move countries, it's even more complex because, you know, you've been brought up in one healthcare sector yes. and then you move to another healthcare sector and it's uh, completely bamboozling. Yes. And so that was what we solved. So we didn't have, when we set up HealthKit, which is now Halaxy, uh, we didn't um, just think, okay, we're going to solve this one small problem for this one particular set. That's a very niche play. And And we have not done that at all because you can't do that in healthcare. All you're doing is passing value between players in the sector. You're not improving an entire sector, and that's what we wanted to do. So two questions. I mean, first, when when do you dive out of a corporate career and say, okay, I've found my North Star, I'm ready to start a business? And secondly... When you've got such a massive ecosystem with so many uh, structural parts and regulation and payment systems, Mm. where do you start? How do you go, this is the first thing we've got to do? I think once when you're in it, you know the answer to that. But you don't necessarily know the answer when you're not actually started. I think um, people often ask, you know, what's your advice to people who are setting up a, a new startup or whatever? It's just start. Yes. Just start um, and go for it. Yeah. And I think we were very lucky with the first business. We learned a lot and if we had kept it going, it would have been moderately successful. Yeah. But then we had to make the call to set up the second business, Health Kit, now Halaxy. Um, and doing that was a really big ju- jump because we had to get rid of everything yeah. and start again. So tell me about this first business. So you've, you, you've left the corporate world and yep. said we're going to start a, a business. Yep. Um, and did you fund that yourself or did you? We did fund that ourselves. Okay. It was through the GFC. Yeah, good time to start a business. Yeah, great time to start a business. Uh, so we had no salary for three or four years. Um, we had employees that we somehow funded. I don't quite know how we did it. It's best not to even think about it. No, sort of gone been into there. It. It's, it's always good to put in the denial bucket. Yeah. Anyway, and so it's incredibly tough because, and incredibly frustrating. Sometimes I would feel incandescent with frustration because you had this goal of being up here. But actually, you're way down here and you've got to help people move along the journey and rely on others, and that's very, very hard. Um, And so the jump from the corporate world to doing that, I think the GFC helped that happen because so many people moved on from particular careers, particularly in finance. Um, And so I'm not sure that it's easy to procrastinate about about doing it, really. Um, And I'm not sure that I would have necessarily 
started unless there wasn't a big macro stimulus yeah yeah yeah. and so i'm really glad that i did now i could never go back to working at a bank ever um whereas you know i could see myself setting up another business in the future i don't quite know what it would be i'm so passionate about what we're doing now with some of the uh, learnings you took out of the first business that didn't go to that level that Mm. you had envisaged for it what were, the, what were the two or three biggest things that you, you look back on and go, oh, these are the things I learnt? Yeah, I, I think um, we wouldn't have necessarily thought that it wasn't going that well at the time. Um, it was going pretty well. I think over time our confidence in the opportunity and in our ability to fix that opportunity um, improved. Uh, but come a, some of that confidence comes from having, you know, made mistakes and learnt through the first business. So we, with sales in the first business, we employed a traditional model of going around to different practices and doing a demonstration like a pharmaceutical company yes, would. Yeah. Um, and that was very time-consuming and it doesn't guarantee a sale and it creates a very high-touch expectation for service. Yes. Um, and you can't do that on a global scale. So we also did exhibitions and conferences, etc., for prof- um, professional organisations, professional associations of, um, you know, GPs or psychologists or whatever. You don't get sign-ups there. So all these traditional ways yep. of marketing just don't work. Um, and so we knew we had to set up a global sales capability without a sales team. So we still, six, years, six seven years later, we still don't have a sales team. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so our cost of acquisition is about 30 cents for a doctor and that, to use our practice management That software. puts you right in the, in the, the framework of being a, a SaaS yeah. business totally. Completely. And I look at a lot of our competitors in the health space who are our SaaS businesses as well, um, and they're spending $250 per practitioner to get them on board. Yeah. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. Um, and so if we're going to be high scale and high growth and high service, we need to have very, very low cost of acquisition. Yeah, so you, your CAC or your cost of acquisition needs to be low and then yeah. obviously you need your uh, the other important metric for a SaaS business is your retention to be yes. uh, high. completely. Um, and before I get into that specific, uh, for the listeners, maybe just give us the elevator pitch, if you will, of Halaxy. Uh, so Halaxy is a global healthcare platform. We're ultimately fixing the world's health systems so that healthcare is more efficient, effective and accessible for everyone, for practitioners, through to patients, through to governments. So that's the, the ultimate goal. Um, and so for practitioners uh, who are in private practice anywhere in the world, we provide practice and patient management software that saves them time. So they're doing an hour a day of administration without Halaxy. We get rid of that so that they can treat more patients. And it's customised to each profession um, and customised globally. So we now have practitioners using our software across 75 different... 40,000 plus practitioners? Yeah, which is amazing. That is amazing. It's very big. Um, Considering in Australia there are only 90,000 practitioners in private practice. Yeah. Uh, So we're in 130 countries. Amazing. Yeah, which is brilliant. Have you visited... All of those countries? No, well, this was one of our key learnings. When we decided to build a global platform, we needed to test the software um, in each country and we couldn't just send it to uh, a practice in the country to get them to beta test because patient safety was, was critical. So we needed a way to test the software 
um, without having to go visit those 130 countries. Uh, so we came up with the backpacker strategy, which is what we call it, because where our office was at the time was very close to the backpacker area of Melbourne. Yes. Yeah. And so we saw that a lot of them had a healthcare background. So nice. for the price of a beer, they tested our software. Wow. So it was perfect. This is a great marketing strategy. Yeah. This, well, is, this is focus groups. Focus groups, absolutely. But yeah. it also confirmed that our product was working and we could then use a beta test group Yes. early on without any patients being at risk. Yeah. So that was way back. That was 2013, 2014. Um, so, yeah, thoroughly recommend the backpacker approach. The cost of a beer. I'm sure for some of the English and Irish uh, backpackers, it was was a couple couple of years. (laughs) There is no judgment, though. Um, And so then on the consumer side, uh, we have a directory to find and book with a practitioner. But more importantly, people can track their own healthcare. So, for example, if you have a condition such as diabetes, you'll have to track your food, your exercise, blood glucose, etc., um, and also see multiple practitioners. So you can enable shared patient records across your care team. You can integrate medical devices. Yeah. So integrate, say, blood glucose monitors to so track your blood glucose yourself self over time, but also have practitioners remotely monitor you. Uh, and so by having the two parts the consumer side and the practitioner side, we can fix all of healthcare. So have an entire sector-wide impact um, and then do that hopefully on a global scale across multiple countries. I mean, it, it sounds like an incredible bit of software and for SaaS platforms, you know, they say the most important person in a business is the product manager, the interface between customers and technical development Um, because it's such a big ecosystem because there's so many moving parts as you said how do you deal with this no doubt incredible influx of feature requests and Mm. and function that you need to build how have you managed this yeah as you know i was coming in um today on the tram and I was looking at somebody's... Your favourite tram? I, my favourite tram, <laughs> not the City Circle, but I'm willing to go the number 72. Um, and there's a woman and she had a, a sort of a carry bag that was advertising a Deliveroo for Asian restaurants. I was thinking, hmm, Deliveroo would not have worked if they targeted a niche play, like we're going to be the Deliveroo for Asian restaurants in London. Yep. Because that technology is relevant not just for Asian restaurants but for Italian, etc. So when you're building your technology, seeing from the start the possibility. So our software had to be global from the start. Yes. So the product had to incorporate the different health systems right from the start. Wow. Hence the importance of the backpacker strategy. Yes. Um, but also it's understanding that service is a part of the product. And so being able to provide customer service to the same level we provide in Australia to people anywhere in the world is something that we strive to achieve. So we have an office in Ireland and they service people in Europe, Middle East and Africa. Yep. But they also service practitioners in Australia. And this year we're about to launch a North American headquarters. Yes. And so that will get us 24-hour customer service. Follow the sun. Follow the sun. But it also gets us... Um, capability across all different markets yeah, uh, and truly become a global business. And so 
building the product to have that flexibility right from the start is very important. So just before I came in here, um, this is very topical. The government has literally this morning just released new item numbers for people affected by the bushfire yeah. who need mental health care. Yes. Our software is so flexible that we can add that new um, funding program within about 20 minutes. Brilliant. And so that then goes out to everyone in Australia. And it's live yes. from the back end, click of a couple of mouse keys. I yeah. 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 So practitioners don't need to do anything. Yeah. And we're providing that level of information for them. And we do it on a global scale. So if there's a program in Ireland, if there's a program in France or the Netherlands, we do the same. Um, and so that flexibility has to be in the product right from the start. And we believe service is critical. So one of the reasons we've had success is uh, in a market where customer service is usually absolutely terrible, we are known for having good service because we have not just a response but a resolution time of an hour. And this sounds like it's a pretty good reflection of you as the problem solver, the person (laughs) who's looking for the ways to always improve things. Yeah, actually how we developed such good service was because early on when Lockie and I were answering all the customer service queries, we learned that it was best to get back to people quickly um, and not procrastinate, even if you're going to say, oh, we don't have that functionality because it was just easier, you could then move on. So Lockie and I serviced all of our customers up until we had 10,000 practitioners signed up. Wow. Uh, So we understand the the business and the customers very, very well as a result. Uh, But we have such a good response time, resolution time as a business, even though we have seven people in customer service only globally. Um, And at a time when people are trying to get rid of customer service and, oh, no, we don't service people over the phone, we're actively promoting it. So you can do that if your product is very easy to use, Yes. if it's very intuitive, if you have very, very good um, training materials and you can then provide that level of intuitive customer service. There was an article I was reading recently. I can't remember if it was The Economist or Time or The Australian, but... um, the article basically said, you know, every CEO comes out and says, customers are at the centre of our business. They're the most important thing. Yeah. Then you go onto their website and you go, where's the phone number to speak to yeah. someone? Where's the email address? How do I, how do I contact this company? Mm. And the article was basically saying, you know, if you're saying that the customer is important, um, make sure that they are actually important. And it sounds yeah. like you're actually doing more than paying lip service. The whole business centres around, you know, providing customer service to these practitioners. Completely, um, and to patients and consumers as well. Um, in our in our office here in Melbourne, customer service is centred right in the middle. We don't hive it off, even though it might be a bit noisy, we don't hive it off. And so we also have very good processes for capturing uh, requests. So sometimes a consumer or a practitioner will make a request. Often it's already in the product and they just don't know So we train them on that. Or it's a suggestion that we have thought of or that we haven't thought of. And so then that gets put on our Slack channel. There's a specific channel for it. It gets reviewed by tech that day. Yes. Um, And then we aim to put it in the product 
as soon as possible. So we're actually about to do a video showing that process because because we've got such good customer service and because the product's very easy, people know that when we say we're going to put something in, we will. Yep. Um, and they, it's more of a community where people make suggestions um, and help us grow the business and grow the product. Yeah. And that's hap- that's been a really beneficial way of us growing our, our market globally. Um, so a couple, of, a couple of years ago, we woke up one morning and one of the practitioners in the Netherlands had decided that he needed a certain functionality in Dutch. So he translated it for us. Oh, fantastic. So we uh, stopped hard coding in English and made it all dynamic. And then our first language outside of English that we went into was Dutch. When, yeah, and so then he helped us get the right words. So some medical words and I'm not meaning for diseases I'm meaning referrals and claiming and that sort of thing um, can be very specific and so you can't just look those up on Google Translate Um, there's actual you need an actual local who works in that sector to come up the phrasing yes anyway so he did that and since then we've gone into different languages in the exact same way now we could only do that because we had the trust of our customers yeah to know that when they make a suggestion, we're going to put it in as soon as possible. So we were in Dutch within a week of him emailing us. No, that's great. And I think um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on, having worked in trying to sell product and services into the medical fraternity previously, is I know, and my father is a dermatologist, they're incredibly conservative. They view outsiders very cynically and uh, technology adoption is very slow uh, especially within you know private practice so first of all you come in with a product selling technology as an outsider uh, how did you break down these barriers i mean once you get some momentum it's one thing but from the outset you're knocking on doors or trying to get some sort of advocacy so people hear about your product how, how did you build this uh, this um, strategy up so i do see that uh, practitioners are sometimes technologically a bit scared, um, have less learning and knowledge than others. But at the same time, they're actually quite um, at the forefront of technology. When there's a new clinical um, approach to something, they'll take it up. Uh, So as long as there's a benefit, they're like anybody else, it's a rational decision. As long as there's a benefit, uh, they will take it up. And so you can take that into technology. The problem in the sector has been a lot of uh, practice management software really hasn't benefited practitioners. It's merely digitised the practice rather than automated. So we saw that we were talking just before about uh, people talking about the customers at the heart, but then the promise isn't met. Yes. We thought, well, let's build a product that actually saves them time. So not just talk about it, but be able to prove it. So we know that the way our product is built, all you need to do is make a booking and then everything is done for you, saves them a couple of minutes per appointment and that adds up to an hour a day. Yeah. And so we can prove that. Yes. And so it's a rational economic decision. Yes, this is going to save me time and money. Yeah. And then over time the benefit comes in through being a part of the network, etc. And so that was how we did it really. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty simple looking back. But at the times quite at times quite frustrating. Yep. The other thing is because software has not benefited practitioners, they don't have a willingness to pay for software. They may have a capacity to pay, but they don't have a willingness to pay. And so structuring our um, 
revenue model around that was really important as well. Yes. So our core software is free. Yep. And then we make money from add-on products that they are willing to pay for, yep. such as payments. So um, gone down the freemium Yes, model. absolutely. Yep. Um, and that's enabled us to grow very fast because our goal was to build a clinical referral network across each country because that's what the health system needs. Uh, and so therefore we grow between 1% and 5% a week. Um, and that's critical in terms of achieving the revenue outcomes that we want to achieve. It's also critical in terms of um, having an impact on healthcare. From the outside looking in, I mean, you know, what you've told me is an incredible journey and obviously the growth uh, speaks volumes to how well you're actually ticking off these boxes that need to be ticked off, service, price, um, you know, function, all of these things. But it, from the outside looking in, it does look like a competitive kind of space with especially in Australia there's a couple of other big uh, companies doing the same or purportedly doing the same thing how have you differentiated yourself yeah. and how is there enough room in the market for multiple people yeah uh, that's a really good question um, and I think it's about seeing the market differently the health is the last industry to digitize so if you focus firstly on those who are not using software, it's much easier to um, sell to them than to those that are and who would have to do switching sale. So we targeted professions that were not using software at first. So that's dermatologists and specialists um, as well as allied health. Yep. And then once we t uh, conquered that, then moved into GP where there's switching um, okay. sales required. So that was very important. There are actually 131 competitors apparently yeah. in the practice management space in Australia. And that switching cost is probably quite high because of those conservative um, things that I've attributed to practitioners and medical specialists? Yeah, to an extent. But, I mean, a lot of people are moving practices a lot. Okay. Um, and so, therefore, they need, need new software a lot. Okay. Uh, and so our software sticks with them throughout. They've got a, a software, um, they get a Halaxy account for life, so to speak, and that can go into different practices, Brilliant. different practice okay. groups. Okay. Yeah, and then we've, we're working through processes to improve migrations. So we have a very good migration process, but we want to automate it as much as possible. So a lot of our 131 competitors are very, very small. They might have four or 500 practitioners um, at the most. Some have three or 4,000. And then some have you know, 20,000 at the most um, who are using the software. None of them have focused on the global market. So yep. that's, from a business point of view, one of our differentiators. But the actual differentiator from the customer is that we save them time. Yep. And we genuinely do and we can prove it. Ra rather than just talking about digitising, we're automating. And that's a whole different level. Yep. Um, and I think also the customer service is critical. Um, as well as our price point. So we haven't focused on just building a product that looks nice. What we've focused on is building a whole business that supports yeah. that. So we have the right sales approach, 30 cent cost of acquisition. We have the right customer service approach, yes. our resolution time. We have the right team to deliver it. We have the right brand with Halaxy. We have the right uh, technology platform to get that scale. So you've got all of that right. Everything comes from there. Yeah. And then because we have global focus, we can then really focus on the opportunities internationally as well. Yep. Uh, you've got 131 competitors. You've got a global company, a SaaS business, ticking a lot of boxes for 
venture capital and, and the kind of investment community, no SaaS business gets to global scale without having investors put in money. And I, I know that Alexi's been the same. How do you go about this next phase of finding investors that you want to work with, uh, the right kind of fit that you know can help you scale? Because I'd say you've moved out of startup land. You're really into scale up and a you know global yes, domination yeah. mode. And maybe you want to take out a hundred of those hundred and thirty-one competitors and acquire them. How do you go into that next phase of, of growth? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we've had investors, angel investors over time, as well as family office. And what we've targeted is people who, they don't necessarily have to understand healthcare or even tech. They have to understand a complex market and understand that if you're going to tackle a complex market, market, you need to be able to manage that through the right team um, and achieve things with low cost but high impact. So it's about thinking things through differently. Yep. Um, and so we're not necessarily interested in acquisition of other of our competitors. We're interested in acquiring their customers, yes. but not acquiring Footprint their technology. Rather than tech. Yeah, yep. I think a lot of the time people overly focus on competitors. But because we're in a market where very few, relatively speaking, globally are using practice management software. We can focus on those yes. rather than focus on you know, a head-to-head war with X competitor. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot written about uh, in tech, especially about the disproportionate lack of women in tech. Um, and you've got a, a male co-founder in Halaxy. Um, have you got to where you've got to and ever looked around and thought, why aren't there more women in tech? Have you have you been able to sort of assess what's going on and, yeah. and provide some things that can encourage more women into tech? I think it's a couple of things and your point there about if you're going to build a global SaaS model that's targeting global domination, you need a lot of capital. Uh, so sometimes it could be lack of access to capital. Yep. could be holding them back. Yep. Uh, I think that's the first thing. When we set up this business uh, in 2012, I don't recall there being other women building global tech businesses Very in few. Melbourne. Um, and then there were a few by sort of 2015, 2016, that kind of time. But often they were focused not on businesses that had uh, – an appeal to everybody. They might have been focusing on businesses that were targeting women. So I think sometimes the capital was targeted to women, helping women because they were perceived as experts. Yes. Um, I think over time it's improved. The Me Too movement has really helped women talk to other women about the issues that they face, but also helped people understand the issues that women face in growing a business. And often that's about... um, Access to capital. I've been a part of Springboard, yes, which has been very, very good um, in terms of me flipping that question around and setting up uh, my own credibility at first, and then talking about the business because we've worked very hard on this um, and we've got global ambitions. We've done a hell of a lot already, I hope, um, but really we've only done two percent of what we're wanting to do. So two percent is our global market share thereabouts, um, and so we want one hundred percent. And so investors that understand that and don't hold us back from that ambition is critical. And you know, speaking to a lot of interesting investors, they're really starting to embrace those ideas. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes the issues have been people want Australian companies to be global from day one, but actually that can be very hard to achieve in a market such as healthcare, um, where each country has its own health system. 
but also perceiving us as the people to do it has been also something that we've had to build over time. So you're now seven years in and you're, you know, um, kept, kept a relatively low profile, um, but now that things are getting into this scale-up mode and shine a light on the incredible work you've done and Halaxy's doing as an Australian company trying to dominate globally, do you feel any sense of obligation or pressure as a female to stand up and, and uh, you know, go to all these events and all these invitations that you get? Is there, is there more time in your day to do that? It's a good question. Um, Lockie and I are not having to do as much, so there is more time because our time can be moved around a lot more easily. However, I think it really frustrates me when people invite me to something because I'm female. Yeah. Um, they should invite me to something because we've achieved a lot in healthcare. Yes. Um, and that I'm female is just an added cherry on top. Um, and so I probably wouldn't go to something if I thought I was just going because... The token yes, female the token. in the room. That's right. Yeah. Um, I do mentor a lot of women. Yep. Uh, I think that uh, over time, though, as we've grown, it's become more isolated. Um, and because, not because I'm female, but because there are fewer and fewer businesses at our, uh, at our scale and at our focus and none in healthcare yeah. uh, in Australia. And so in other, in other sectors in tech, there are some. Yes. But at the same time, you know, once you start hitting particular inflection points, such as having overseas offices, you're in a different atmosphere. You're dealing with different things yeah. and it becomes more isolated. And so what I've done has joined YPO. Yes. Yeah. Which has been brilliant. Yeah. Um, and it's incredibly supportive on a professional and yeah. personal level. Uh, and I really, really get a lot out of it at the moment. Um, and so having those support networks around you is critical. Yeah. Oh, look, you've got an incredible uh, amount of uh, things yet to achieve and upside. And uh, sounds to me with your focus on uh, clients first and technology that everything's positioned in, a, in, in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I look at the big players in America. Um, one of them has 120,000 practitioners and they're worth about $5 billion. We've got 40,000. We're not worth $5 billion yet. But, you know, this is a market where it does take a while to, to grow to scale. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got 130 countries represented on our um, practitioner books. And now it's about let's do more. Let's get bigger footprints in particular countries. Let's get scale internationally uh, beyond what we've done and continue to make healthcare well, better. I think you've done an incredible job. I'd be shouting my own name from the rooftops if I were you, but as you're not doing it, I'll do it for you. Um, it's really an incredible journey. I want to know, though, as a CEO or co-CEO, uh, what's it like working for you? What, what are your non-negotiables? Oh, this is good. I've just been reading um, Brene Brown and she's talking oh, yeah, about yeah, boundaries. Yeah. So I, my answer may change once I finish the book. Um, in our business, in the last three years, we've had only one person leave um, that wasn't planned. And so we have an incredibly high um, team morale. 
Uh, we do team health checks. Team health checks every six months. We know that people are incredibly engaged, um, and how we achieve that is through hiring the right people, uh, and so hiring people who can handle the complexity and pace, who are curious and interested in learning, and who are easy to do business with, yep. and who don't have an ego, and who want to work in an incredibly diverse environment. Seventy percent of our team was born overseas. Yep, uh, we have gay team members, straight team members, male, female, people with kids, people without kids, people of different ages. And it's not about that, but it's about making sure that what matters is uh, can you deliver and not prevent other people from delivering. It's not about anything else really. Yeah, we um, obviously hired incredibly well. Yeah, I, I do most of the hiring and I get it right nine out of ten times. When I get it wrong, I get it pretty wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> that's mainly caused by not listening to my intuition. Anyway, but that's one of the boundaries. Listen to my intuition. Alison, um, I think I need your help in hiring. I think I get it right one out of ten. No, 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 that's horrible. not true. No, I think um, I really enjoy the, the people side of the business and that's what it is all about. It's the people side. And tell me then about people. Tell me about the importance of your co-founder, Lockie. Um, how much have has having two heads been better than one in this journey? Oh, I look at people who've just got themselves and I think, oh, that must be even more lonely. Um, but it's fantastic because together we have the right skill set. Yeah. Uh, and so he looks after tech and ops. I look after sales, marketing, uh, clinical and investor. Uh, and so bringing those together has um but keeping them separate with us has meant that we're able to get a lot more scale with it, with ourselves. Um, we have a team called the Expansion Team, which do a lot of projects. So it's about anything to do with expanding the business. That could be expanding service, um, setting up new offices, uh, growing our customer base, etc., building our product. And they are the people who we go to. They help us run the business. And so that's also been very, very helpful. Uh, and so having Lockie um, as my business partner has meant we're able to soar together. What's the one thing, failure or mistake, that you'd want to impart on young entrepreneurs? Don't do this. Don't think too small, I think. Um, you know what I was talking about with Deliveroo, if they just said we're targeting Asian restaurants, they would never have achieved global scale. And so build your product to be global, to be as big and as expansive as you possibly can, and then have go-to-market strategies that are localised. So we call it local. Right. Global and local. Yeah. Um, and that's really important for any sector. The other thing that I would say is at first your goal is to survive. So hire the people that you can get uh, to, to get you to grow, um, to the point that you're surviving, then start to really focus on culture. And culture isn't do I like this person so much as can they do the job? Mm. Do they want to do the job and yep. will they do the job well with us? Yep. Can they deliver? Are they going to prevent other people from delivering? Yeah. And that's when you really I start love, to, yeah. I love that. Are they it's, going to prevent other people from yeah. delivering? Yeah. If somebody's got a massive ego, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Um, if somebody's discriminating, it's going to be difficult. Yes. Um, if somebody's not wanting to actually work, but rather just talk about it, it's going to be difficult. No, that's great. Um, well, you've given a lot of insights already about yourself, but I always finish off on a, on a quick fire round. Um, <clears throat> so who's been a professional inspiration to you? 
I know we're supposed to be saying people in, in tech world is uh, who we're inspired by, but actually I'm probably more inspired by people who um, change the world, such as Nelson Mandela, etc. Yep. And that comes from having the right attitude and thinking through things very, very deeply. So he walked out of Robben Island prison and he wasn't going to be bitter. He was just going to move on. Um, and that was very impressive. I'm also impressed by the team at Airbnb. Yep. Because they knew to do unscalable things in order to grow their business. Yep. What is the kindest thing anyone's ever said to you? I actually had, this feels a bit self-aggrandizing. It's not my, it's not my intention. Um, so I went on this health retreat. Uh, over Christmas and New Year and I created the spreadsheet for people to um, keep in contact and then on the plane back so I was sitting next to some very, very drunk people and so I still had my, my zen health retreat focus <laughs> so I uh, typed out everyone's names and then sent it around so that you know people could keep in contact. Anyway, and somebody emailed me back and I'd known her previously and she said, this is very kind of you and she said to me, um, in fact, you're one of the kindest people I've ever met. And I thought it was so kind of her to say that. She didn't have to say that. And um, I, it's, it's given me energy for the um, – it's given me energy for the last couple of weeks. That's wonderful. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I think kindness comes from actions, yep. really, yep. Um, and people making an effort for other people. Yeah. If you got hit by a bus today and uh, – as the bus was bearing down on you, what is the one thing you would say, oh, I wish I'd done that? Uh, I'm a huge fan of chocolate and uh, it's got medicinal properties. So I probably wish that I hadn't focused on the chocolate to solve my problems, but actually dealt with them more head on. Okay. Um, if you could go anywhere right now, because it's coming up to lunchtime, in the world for lunch, where would you go? Oh, yum chat. I, it's not It's not about anywhere in the world. It's about what cuisine would I have. And yum cha, absolutely. Um, what's your favourite movie? Oh, again, my business partner criticises me for this because uh, I do like the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I love the movie. I think you've already answered this question, but what culture fascinates you? Well, I've lived in different countries and I speak a number of different Asian languages. So um, I've experienced different cultures, both good for me and bad for me, they're probably more aspects of culture um, that fa fascinate me. So one thing I recently read was about the Inuit. Um, and when somebody is close to death, they'll put them in a canoe and send them out into the, um, into the, the ocean. Um, and, you know, that to us sounds incredibly harsh. But if you've grown up in that environment, knowing that that's how you'll die, then that's entirely acceptable. Yes. Uh, so I'm probably more fascinated by that that's aspect. That's fascinating. Also, um, I lived in Thailand. Um, and something that at first I had problems with but I really like is when you give a gift to somebody in Thailand, they barely say thank you um, and at first. And one of the reasons is because if you effusively thank, say thank you, it diminishes my gift giving because right. you, I might be giving the gift so that you'll say thank you rather than for the act of generosity itself. And I think that's a fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah it's really interesting. Well, listen, Alison, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, 2020 is shaping up for a massive year for Halaxy. Good luck with the continued 
expansion and thank you very much for being on Discipline. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun.